York Times bestselling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. All right, Taylor, we are continuing our series on intellectual property rights. Today, we're going to dig into foreign rights. Uh, But before we do that, we got an email several weeks ago, and we've been meaning to mention it and just haven't yet. It was from Lori Puma, who is a a certified StoryGrid editor. And StoryGrid, for those who may not know, is something that we've talked – we've talked about the book – and the process of the story grid several times on the show, and it's something that we refer to regularly. I've got a copy of the story grid book here on my bookshelf, and Lori is a story grid certified editor, so that means she uses their process for building for building stories. But her email is, I'm a fan of the Taylor Stevens show. I particularly enjoyed the episodes you did where you edited a listener's story that had too much description. I I recommended your show and that series of episodes specifically in a blog post of 33 podcasts that will help writers finish, publish, and sell their first novel. We will link to that post in the show notes at taylorstevenshow.com. And uh, thanks so much, Lori, for doing that. Um, but I, I just, that's pretty cool that, that people are recognizing cool. the work that goes into the Hack the Craft episodes. Absolutely. And I wanted to say that, I mean, we always love to read reader feedback, get reader feedback. That's uh, listener feedback. That's awesome. It's, it, we know that there are probably you know, a hundred listeners for every one person who writes and says something about it. But those emails, the comments that tell us that what we're doing is useful is very appreciated. So that's the one thing. But I, we don't just go ahead and link to anything that somebody sends into us. So of course I went and I checked out this blog post and Lori does have some amazing resources on that post of, you know, we only do one show a week and they're not always hack the craft shows. So for those who are looking for more or looking for something that approaches writing from a different perspective than we do, there are a lot of resources in that post. And that's why we're linking to it because it's some really amazing curated material that many of our listeners would probably appreciate. All right. So are you ready to get into foreign rights, Taylor? I am ready to get into foreign rights. And when we got finished recording last week's show, I had a sort of a like, oh my God, moment where <laughs> I, I had, should have said this. I should have, right? So we were talking about movies and how I had this big blank hole in my knowledge base of how someone who is not a traditionally published author would find representation to get their book sold through, you know, the Hollywood route. And I forgot to mention book scouts. Uh, movie scouts, and and it ties into today's topic of foreign rights as well, in that there are always scouts working in these different industries, keeping up with any kind of buzz that's going on, where if they hear there's a lot of excitement or chatter about a particular book, they're going to want to go look into it, and they will try and find a way to hook that book author, if they're not represented by an agent, that is one possibility for indie authors is if a book scout, if the book catches a book scout's attention, they would try and find a way to bring that to the person that they're scouting for. 
So I don't know how common that is, but I know that it does happen, uh, not just with traditionally published authors, but indie authors who've sold a certain amount or who have a unique enough idea that the Book Scout somehow comes in contact with, etc. And I, I can say that I work with a number of indie authors who are pretty high profile and sell a lot of books, and the majority of them have been approached by people. I, I don't know that they're using the term like Book Scout or Movie Scout or whatever, but they're being approached by people saying, I know people who might be interested in this. Can I represent you? Um, can I show them the material? Can you get me this so that I can show it? And you, you did mention the idea of knowing someone who knows someone. Right. And it was this was kind of that kind of thing. So maybe it, that's a Book Scout kind of thing. But I do think if you're out there and you're an indie author and you're selling at a certain level, you're already getting those those contacts or you will at some point. And I think there are also people within the publishing industry who are scouting for other rights. Like they already know that you have the ebook. They know that no smart indie publisher is going to sell their ebooks rights. That's just stupid unless the money is just so huge they can't turn away from it. But they know there are a lot of other rights that are left on the table. And so there are people in the publishing industry who scout for those rights to see if they can match them up with somebody willing to buy them as well. But I don't know I don't know that anyone actually goes out and actively finds those person people. It's more like those people find you type thing. So Yes. And that, that really leads in directly to what we're talking about today, because I have heard a number of stories uh, of this – was, this was a few years ago where big-time indie authors would be approached. I'd hear it on podcasts. they say, well, you know, out of the blue, I got a call from someone who said, can I represent you and sell your foreign rights? So people who specialize just in foreign rights were contacting authors. I, I suspect that's still going on. I don't know. Yeah, I think it is. And so today we're going to talk about foreign rights. And first, we're going to approach it from a traditional perspective. And then we're going to turn that over sort of and get like even Steve kind of has his pulse a little bit more on how things work with Indies. And he's had some anecdotal um, experiences. So we can sort of compare back and forth. But to understand the Indie experiences, you kind of have to have sort of an overview of how this process actually works. And I can explain that through the traditional model. So if you have an agent, that agent is going to fight to keep your foreign rights. Most of the time, they're going to have to give them up to the publisher to get the publishing contract. Now, if the agent keeps the foreign rights, then that agent is going to try and sell them for you. Um, that's when their agency split comes into play of, you know, when you have your agent agreement and they take their, you know, 15% commission or 20% commission, it's going to spell out how much foreign rights are for. And that's when they're getting that split, not when the publisher gets that split. So any agency that is solid, reputable, been around for a while, they're going to have sub-agents. And those sub-agents are going to be doing a lot of the work for them in foreign territories. Now, you, you have Europe, you have South America, you have Asia. And so each one of those areas has their big sort of, the, these are the big players in the foreign rights market. So in Europe, for example, that would be Germany, France, Italy. Um, UK is considered separate from that. Um, 
because those are the ones that have the biggest reading audiences. And then you have all these smaller little countries, like, you know, Croatia, Bosnia, Hungary, um, and so forth. And they will give you, you know, those are going to be really small, like $1,000 or whatever for the rights, for the foreign rights for that language. Sometimes it's $500. And that, that can add up consistently. But you have the big players and then you have the little players. So just how it works inside the United States with the publishing house the publishing house has material submitted to them through agents, right? Well, it's the same, the same thing works internationally as well. You have the publishing house, and then agents are submitting their work to them. And so that's where the foreign agent comes in, the foreign agent. And there are those foreign agents who specialize in cross-language, cross cross-territory books. So they will, the whether it's your agent specifically or the publisher's in-house foreign rights department, they are going to be working with a foreign agent to try and find somebody in that particular country who loves the book and now wants to turn around and rep that book to the foreign publishing house. So if you're an indie author, even though you're not using a local agent, an agent on US soil, you're still going to end up having to go through that same process of dealing with a foreign agent because that's how books get into publishing houses. Now, what happens is you have a couple of really big book fairs every year. Like there's the Frankfurt Book Fair where all the publishing houses in the United States go there. And I, and I think just about every publishing house in Europe sends somebody to that fair. And it's a meat market. They're buying and selling and trying to sell products that these are the books that we have that we think you're going to like. And so if there is, for example, a Scandinavian crime story <laughs> that the American audience that's might enjoy that's where that's you know or if there's a scandinavian crime story that hasn't already been translated to english for the american Angli uh, audience right it's hard to believe so, that there are any um so that that's kind of the avenue that it would go through is through a sub agent now the let's say it's you know a swedish publisher who has a book by a swedish author they're going to have an agent inside the united states to represent that work to an american publisher so it works both directions, but I think far more uh, American published books get published outside the United States than the other way around. Um, so that's kind of an overview of how it works. And as far as the, the money trail, um, with your agent, if they're doing the represent if they're working directly with a foreign agent, your agent's going to take a 20% commission off of, or whatever their their fee is, 20, 25% is pretty normal. And then from that, they're going to do a split with the sub-agent that they're working for, the foreign rights sub-agent. So that's how that works. And in the, the, the publisher's foreign rights department, it kind of sort of works the same way. They're going to be working with the sub-agent. The sub-agent's going to take their commission out. The money's going to get transferred to your publisher, they're going to take their percentage. And sometimes there are taxes, like foreign taxes that are taken out because other countries work, a lot of other foreign uh, countries work off the VAT system, which is taxes get taken out every step of the way. It's not just based off of the income and product like it is here. So there will be taxes removed 
before it ever gets to your uh, publisher. So let's say that the agreement was for, you know, $10,000. By the time it finally gets to your publisher, it might only be $7,000. And then they're going to take their commission out of that. And then your agent's going to take their commission out of that. So that's the reason why your agent wants to hold on to these rights, the foreign rights, if they can. It's to cut out a few of the middlemen and get you a bigger check if they can, if they have that negotiating clout. And the other reason is it's faster, because when it goes direct from publisher to publisher, it has to go through this publisher's accounting, then that publisher's accounting, then to your agent. And those are six-month accounting periods. So let's say the money doesn't get sent to your publisher until the book publishes in that foreign country. Then that publisher has to go through their accounting period before they finally send a check to your publisher and on and on it goes. So when you, uh, your agent has those rights specifically, they're also cutting off a huge chunk of that time uh, cycling through of accounting periods and whatever. But again, holding on to foreign rights is rarer and rarer these days. And when foreign rights are sold, it goes through the same process that it does with English rights is what formats, is it in print? Is it in ebook? Is it in audio? What countries? So a lot of these foreign rights will be worldwide German, for example, which means they have the right to sell German copies of this book anywhere in the world, not just in Germany. But those rights could be more narrow, and it could be Europe. German or whatever. And that's all spelled out in any of the agreements or contracts. There's always going to be a paper trail that shows what rights, what slice of that pie specifically that person now or that entity now has. Um, and when it comes to translations, usually, or, or finding ebook narrators, if you're going through a publisher, a foreign publisher, then that publisher is going to handle all of that. If you are an indie author and you've sold your work directly to a publisher through a foreign agent, I imagine the process would be the same. But there are some indie authors who just want to have find their own translator and they have the work translated into foreign language and they go through the same process of finding their own narrators and they self-publish their works in foreign languages and have them listed on one of the many foreign Amazon, you, you know the process, those of you who've looked into it, and Steve can explain it better. But anyway, that's kind of an overview from the traditional publishing side that will now open the floor to Steve to look at it from the indie side. Well, and let me ask you one more question um, okay. with, with regard to the sale of foreign rights. Is this a single transaction where you say you use the, you use the number $10,000? We'll say... You sell the rights uh, to German language for the world for $10,000. Is that an advance on royalties, or is that a flat payment of you have, you've sold those rights for $10,000? Everything is advance on royalties. Okay. So if that country earns out, like if they sell enough of all books to make that, then you will start getting royalties cumulatively on books that are above and beyond that. And you when you you can tell on your statements, the royalty statements, 
because it shows up like, oh, check sold 200 copies of the informationist this last thing above and beyond. And it starts adding cumulatively to the royalty copies. And you can see a history of how it's gone and which countries have sold earned out. And yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Okay. All right. So now we'll get into the indie side of things. And I do some consulting for a small publishing company called LMBPN Publishing, uh, which is Michael Anderley's publishing company. For people who follow indie publishing, they probably know who Michael Anderley is. He's one of the best-selling indie authors in the world right now, and he's only been at it for, I think it was 27 months. I think it's 27 months. And last year, he went to Frankfurt, to the book, to the book fair, uh, with the express purpose of kind of hacking the process for selling foreign rights, and he wanted to do it himself. So he found a, a, a distributor in Germany, and he's starting in Germany, and he's working with a translator to get the books published, translated in German, and then will work in other languages as well. And in true indie format, he wants to control the process as much as possible. He doesn't want to have... Uh, anyone else getting a slice of the pie other than the translator. So he doesn't he doesn't want to involve agents um, or scouts or anything like that. He's trying to do all this on his own. It's it's a very complicated process. I've been involved in it um, pretty deeply. It's a very complicated process, and it, it is slow going. Um, for those of you who listen to Joanna Penn's podcast, The Creative Pen, you've probably heard her talk about the sale of indie rights. She has actually, as I understand it, she had, at least a couple of years ago, she had an agent that was selling her rights, and she's getting getting things translated that way, and she may be doing some self-translation now. They're actually, uh, we, we talked about audio a little bit, and if you're an indie and you do audio, you, you may have used uh, ACX, Audible Exchange, something or other, uh, where authors and narrators can connect and you find the right person to narrate your books, you run it through ACX, and they handle, Audible handles the payments. You get your share, the narrator gets their share. There's a company that does that kind of thing called Babelcube. Uh, so it's, it's the same kind of thing. There are narrators out there that are willing to narrate your work into different languages. And the better quality uh, translators are going to want to work on books that are selling well in the United States. So that is, that's another way that if you're an indie, you could get your books translated in, into another language without paying any money up front to do this. I mean, you could also so, – go ahead. Just to make sure I understand because um, you – First, we're talking about narrators, and then you were talking about translators. So Babelcube is specifically for translators, For translators, right? yes. Okay. Yes, yes. And it's, it's not for audio at all. I was just using that as, as an example. And I don't know anyone that's used it. I looked at it um, before we decided to go our, our own way with, with finding uh, translators. But it, it, the system is almost identical to ACX. So if you're familiar with that, it, it's kind of a similar thing. And as ACX has gotten bigger and bigger, uh, more and more really top-tier narrators are getting involved through the ACX uh, web of connections. So, so let I me ask you this. For someone who is not traditionally published, 
for someone who's not at Michael Enderley's level with the resources or the volume that he has, someone who's just an individual with, you know, five, six books out, how would someone like that as an indie go about getting their books into the hands of a foreign publisher? Oh, that's that's a that's a really good question, and I don't I don't know the answer to it. I mean, it's it's one thing to get the books translated, and then to use the existing ebook distribution methods to sell them. You know, the, through the the I, I, we'll just use Germany as an example because you used that earlier. Uh, the German um, store of of Amazon, the German Kobo store, uh, the German iTunes store. They 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 have all of these. In, in German that are specific to, to Germany. And if you translate into German, then there are some other, some other countries that can sell the book as well. And so it, it's one thing to get it in with a publisher who's actually going to get physical copies of the book into stores. It's another thing altogether to just get them translated and make them available digitally through these, through these other stores. So in other words, going the indie route overseas as well. Yes, yes. It's, exactly. it's very similar. And okay. we're not far enough into it to know what percentage of the sales are going to come from stores uh, from the other than the stores that we would sell a lot of in the United States and in the English speaking world. So we don't I don't know the answer to that question yet, but it's it's interesting and it looks like at least to me that it's going to be mostly uh, electronic because you know these are indie books. It's going to be mostly ebooks, and it's going to be mostly through the big stores. So, so when you're talking about selling electronically, you're talking about selling electronically through, through the big stores, through, the chains. No, or no. When I say and, the big stores, I mean the big digital stores: Amazon, okay. Kobo. Kobo is really big uh, internationally. Um, so, in your in your experience, um, because so much of reading is cultural based, like mm-hmm. ebooks are huge in the United States. And I know that in Germany, which is Europe's biggest market, physical books are still really important. Germans pride themselves on reading, and uh, the German laws, they may have changed since I last looked into it, but they did not really facilitate any sort of predatory pricing that would allow bookstores to be put out of business. It's just a different concept there as far as capitalism and marketplace. Mm-hmm. And so bookstores there are still thriving. So, and and it's a very, um, they don't, people walk a lot more to places. And, you know, so walking into a bookstore is a much different experience than in some of our car-centric states where you'd have to get in the car and drive to a bookstore. So therefore, ebooks are far more convenient. You don't have to go anywhere to get one. Um, so is there any type of information that's out there in terms data in terms of ebook to paper book consumption in these countries that would tell an indie author whether they could expect to see any kind of volume in sales there that would make this process worth the time and expense? I'm sure there is. I don't I don't know where it is. I don't I don't have access to it. I can tell you that uh, Michael is also trying to get into the bookstores in Germany, making a much bigger effort to get into bookstores there than he would here, probably for the reason that, that you've discussed. It's, it's a more vibrant uh, market over there. And 
To facilitate that, he has formed an agreement with a distributor, a physical book distributor in Germany, and we're going through the process of taking the translated books, uh, getting them reformatted for print in a size that will work uh, for the German audience and making them available to them. But okay. that's that's it's really early days with that. We don't have they don't have the first book yet. And to if I understand that correctly, that means that Michael and his team would actually have to contract separately with a print company and have those books warehoused and available for the distributor. Well, the distributor will do that. The distributor okay. will take care of that. They 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 make the arrangements with the print company over there, and so they're they're giving him the specifics of how the book should be formatted and the sizes and things like that. And we just need to deliver the files that they can get printed. Okay. So for someone with the ability to roll the kind of qu quantity that Michael can, that would make sense. But if, if you're just a Well, we don't know that it would person, make sense. I mean, we okay. really don't know that it would make sense. But one of the things that's cool about Michael is that he just tries things and then he talks about it. Like I, at first I thought, should I be talking about this? And I'm like, why not? He talks, he writes this kind of thing in the back of every <laughs> book that he publishes in his author notes. He and talks about what's, what's going, going on. on. Yeah. Right. And it's really so cool. it's just there. So it's available for everyone. It's, it's not confidential. And he's very open about, about what's going on and what's working and what's not working. And he's willing to try and invest in things that may not work. And if they don't work, it's right. like, whoa, man, man, that, that was horrible. I wish we hadn't done that. So we don't That's know how we don't know how this is going to work, um, but the ebook thing is going fairly smoothly, and that's something that if you're if you're an indie author in the United States, you have a pretty good sense of your digital sales versus your print sales through CreateSpace or you know whatever whoever you use to produce your print manuscripts. It's it's probably you know overwhelmingly in favor of. Ebooks, and right. I have a feeling it's going to work out the same way over there. Although I don't know, it's, I mean it's just a guess. And in looking at the early numbers for ebook sales, most of them are coming in through the companies that you would expect them to come in through. And but okay. there are and lots, I, there are lots of other places selling ebooks other than the big four over there. Right, and then it would seem that any. Um, process that an indie or a tradition, any author goes through in trying to get people aware of their books and that they exist would then be even, um, I would say exacerbated, but um, extrapolated or whatever mm -hmm. um, over there because it would rely almost entirely on word of mouth or people who've read the books in English and are recommending them to a foreign language reader because discoverability is going to be an issue no matter where you go. Yes, and it's, it is essentially you're starting over right. <laughs> over there. And one of the things that's interesting, and this surprised me, is that by having right now just a single book uh, translated to German, that has increased the sales of the English language books, the other 20 in the series. In that, that – in that, that language, in because that people yeah. have read it in, in German, and they go, oh, I really like it, and they can work their way through an English-language book. They would prefer right. to read German, but they don't want to wait, so they're going yeah. out and buying the English-language version of the book, which that surprised me. No, it makes sense to me, but I, I've lived abroad a lot, <laughs> many of my years, and, and, I, and I get a lot of requests from foreign readers as well. Do you have this copy in my language? And I'm like, no, sorry, that one's only in English. And they're like, okay, I'll go read it in English. I just prefer it in my 
native tongue. Yes. And with all this being said for indie authors, it's really easy to get ahead of yourself and to say, I really need to be focused on the foreign markets. You'll hear people talking about the idea of these different buckets of revenue, um, but you need to get things right in each area where you are before you move on to the next area. So if you don't have your covers and your blurbs and the books and your marketing right in the United States, it doesn't make sense to start thinking about translating. You know, get it done right here and then worry about audio because that's a probably a, a more significant possible source of income and it's easier to do and then work your way into these other things don't just go wow you know joanna Penn's talking about do, selling foreign rights or selling her books or getting them translated and michael anderley's doing it i want to do that you know get, do the things you're doing as well as they can be done before you take the next step yeah i that's really really important and um I guess we're getting close to the end of this episode, but I want to um, tack on one little thing, too, is that uh, reading is a very cultural experience. And I I've learned this and my agent has, you know, she's got so many years in this industry and I don't even know how many foreign rights they've sold directly, not even mm -hmm. through publishers. And she keeps she's always told me foreign rights are funny. She's like, there are some countries that they like the same sort of thing that American readers do. And then there are some countries that they will like the strangest things that you would think would never sell. And so if you go into this thing of wanting to sell foreign rights, it, it's good to have that in the back of your mind that not every culture is going to experience books the same as we do here because, you know, the way we like our endings or what, what mm. we expect mm -hmm. to see in a book or what kind of <laughs> Scandinavian crime novels are very, very dark. <laughs> Not everybody likes those, you know, that type of a thing. Um, so thrillers are huge in Germany. But other, you know, maybe science fiction isn't. I actually have no idea. Maybe science fiction is even huger. Um, so it, it would be something that if, if you're an Indian, you're planning to invest the money and the time into, you know, getting a book translated, finding a translator, you know, getting a narrator. You might want to do a little bit of market research. Just find out if what you write has a market where you want to sell it. Because, you know, it's cool to have your book in a foreign language, but if you invest X amount of money into it plus the time and it's just not something that appeals to them, it would have been nice to know that before you start. And it's I don't know whether you had this feeling or not, but my sense in dealing with with translators now is that it, it's almost like audio where once you turn it over to the narrator, it almost becomes the narrator's work, or it's a combination then of the narrator and the author rather than just the author. And maybe that's a, a reason that you don't listen to your audiobooks because it changes. And the narration process is not just, I need to translate this word exactly into the same word in Germany. It's, it's being able to translate the emotions that yes. a reader would feel reading it in English and... To a certain extent, it, it may be significantly different than just translating word by word by word. That is very, very true. Um, I've had some email exchanges with translators from some of the 
foreign titles where they've come to me and said, can you clarify this? I need to understand what this really means, not the actual, you know, words, but the the deeper layers, because we use shortcuts. All languages use shortcuts. That where, that's where cliches come from. That's where similes mm-hmm. and idioms and you know, all that come from. And, and you can't always directly translate some of that stuff. And so a really good translator will be doing that. And I've, I've seen in reviews here in the United States on some of these foreign books that have been translated to English, where people will literally say, I didn't like this, but maybe it's be- it just this book felt different, but maybe it's because it had a different translator this time. Uh, yeah, and I think that's entirely possible. Uh, let me tell a quick story. I know we're out of time, and then we'll wrap up. I probably 30 years ago read these three books. Uh, I don't remember the language they were originally written in. They were translated to English. I read them. They were a series, and then there was another standalone, and they were among my favorite books for years, and I, I read them and reread them and just loved them. And then I found that the author had written dozens of books in this other language, and I was trying to figure out a way that I could learn enough of that language to be able to read the books in that language. <laughs> I was so desperate to read more wow. of them. And none of them have ever been translated back to English, and, and this was a long time ago, so they never will. But I can see where people in in another country if for example the informationist was the only book that was translated they they would be anxiously awaiting the next one it happens i get emails still consistently from people who are asking i'm like sorry in that language that was the only one that ever got done oh. <laughs> <laughs> like do you read any other languages cuz there's some other languages where oh it was my done gosh. And- <laughs> now i feel bad for those people that only get that only got to read the first book All right, this has been a fun series. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I hope you've learned something. We will be back with probably something closer to a Hack the Craft kind of thing. It might not be a Hack the Craft episode, but we'll be back to talking about craft next week. So thank you guys for coming along with us on this three-episode journey. Thanks for being with us. See you next week. 